So it's great to be here again, and thank you, Naomi, for your prayer. Uh, when I heard you were praying for Pastor Wong, halfway through it, I realized you were praying for me. Because I always think Pastor Wong is Pastor Ethan Wong. <laughs> I think I need to get used to it. But thank you very much. I, I give thanks to, to God for this privilege to preach at the English congregation this week and next week, two Sundays in a row, so you cannot escape me. But this will allow me to preach on some of the passages that I just cannot do with only one session. These passages are just too complicated in its structure, too much detail in the cultural context, and too rich in its, me- in, in its message that one session just cannot do justice in giving you a reasonably sufficient explanation on God's precious word. So I'm going to take advantage of this two weeks in a row opportunity to share with you my favorite story in the Bible, the parable of the return of the prodigal son. Well, this parable is also known by many as the greatest story ever told in human history. I think this title is rightly deserved. For such a well-known, very familiar story, what more can we talk about? Well, for some biblical accounts, especially those we think we are familiar with, I think we, we very often share one common problem. And this common problem is that although we are very familiar with the scripture itself, we don't really grasp, comprehend its core messages or its meaning. The parable of the prodigals is definitely one of those passages that we are familiar with, but maybe mistaken. So I pray to God, that God will bless us with a better comprehension of his love through this greatest story ever told in history. The parable of the prodigal son is also known as the gospel within the gospel for many centuries now. This means that this story can best address the core messages of the gospel. Right? Are you sure? Is this parable really the best representation of the gospel message? Now let me ask you, what are the two most fundamental messages of the gospel? What are the two most fundamental components of the gospel? The answer is easy. Because these two components are represented by the two Christian holidays in our calendar. We have Christmas which represents the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So incarnation is one. And also we have Good Friday and Easter, which represents the atonement that Christ has done for our sins. So two components, incarnation and atonement. Now the question, why these two most fundamental messages, core messages, of the gospel, incarnation and fundamental, both uh, and atonement, both seem to be missing in this parable, which is known as the gospel within the gospel. Why? Well, to understand this gospel within the gospel, just like any other biblical accounts, we need to begin with understanding its cultural context. How did the audience of Jesus understand it. 
the first target audience of this parable is not the general public. It was not the disciples of Jesus or the followers of Jesus, but indeed the challengers of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. These scribes and Pharisees were challenging Jesus' action at that time. As the scripture describes, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear, around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which are the scribes, muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told this parable because he is responding to the charges of the scribe and the Pharisees that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, next week, I will give you more backgrounds on who the scribes and Pharisees were, but today, let's focus on their accusations against Jesus. They cannot accept that this Jesus, who is widely considered as the Messiah, goes so far as to welcome sinners and eat with them. The term welcome literally means to have fellowship. But the biggest issue is not just to have fellowship, but to eat with them. Jews are quite different with Chinese. When we go to those, you know, in Vancouver, we have lots of those Hong Kong-style cafes, those restaurants. We sometimes need to share a table with strangers, right? You know, we have five different parties in one table. And that's no big deal, right? A lot of times when I see some kids eating with parents, they treat them as if they're strangers too. Right? They're just playing with their phones. A whole meal. So we used to be eating with strangers. But to Jews, eating with someone is not only a big issue. It's even close to a sacramental act. To Jews, eating together signifies total acceptance. Just like a family. Jesus fellowships with sinners and eats with them, granting them total acceptance. That's outrageous. For scribes and Pharisees who self-appointed themselves as protectors of Israel's law, and therefore they see themselves as protectors of the reputation of Israel God, they cannot accept the actions of Jesus. They consider Jesus' actions insulting and shaming the reputation of Israel's laws and Israel's God. But the word sinner, which means law-breaking individual, is a Pharisee's word. If you notice, Jesus never addressed anyone with this word. Well, this word includes only the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the criminals, etc., but it does not include those spiritual elites such as the scribes and the Pharisees. So, in order to respond to this serious accusation, Jesus told a series of three parables, including the lost sheep, lost coin, and this greatest story ever told, the parable of the lost son, two sons. So, the religious leaders Jesus see them. Jesus see the religious leaders at that time portray God the Father as a God that will not accept sinners, that forsakes sinners. Jesus 
who has been with the Father since the very beginning, has decided to tell these three parables to provide a correct portrait of who this Father God is. Through these parables, Jesus is painting this portrait, a portrait of the Holy God, whose reputation the scribes and the Pharisees are so zealous to protect. It turns out that through these parables, Jesus makes it worse for himself. It intensifies the hatred of the scribes and the Pharisees and eventually leads to Jesus' crucifixion. Now let's take a look at the parable. The parable begins with this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So this father divided his property between them, two sons. What a cruel request this young guy has made. Anyone here has asked your father this? Well, if you raise your hand, I won't say praise the Lord. Okay? It is as though this guy is saying, Father, I'm losing patience and can't wait until you die. Now, let's just pretend that you're dead. And give me now what will come to me when you do die. What a shameful act this son has done to his father. You know, in the Middle Eastern culture, in which faith and respect are of utmost importance, such a request is unheard of and indeed unimaginable. Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who has spent more than, more, more than half of his life in the Middle East as a theologian, he pointed out that it's impossible for a son to make such a request to a father in the Middle East because, first, the father will likely beat him up. And second, if the father grants his request, the father will be seen as a coward. As the head of the family or even the clan, this is extremely shameful in the society. This is why it's impossible for any father to grant such requests or else they will lose the authority to lead and and manage the family estate. Most fathers, upon such requests, we will likely do the opposite and declare not to leave this son any inheritance in order to warn against the other sons that they will not do similar requests. From the request of the prodigal, a couple keywords we need to pay attention on. The prodigal asked his father to give him his share of estate and his father gave him the property. Jesus was very specific about his selection of words. He intentionally avoided using the word inheritance. The difference is of very significant importance. In a Jewish society at Jesus' time, inheritance does not only refer to properties, but also, more importantly, refers to the responsibilities to preserve the family's estate and to protect the name of the family or the clan. When the sons inherit the estate from the father after he dies, they will not sell the properties. Rather, they will take ownership and begin to manage the family's estate. And upon inheriting the family estate, sons are mandated to protect the family's name at all costs, even at the cost of his life. So the prodigal 
specifically asked for the estate, but not inheritance. His meaning is as clear as it can be. He just wants the benefits, but does not care about the responsibilities or even the family's reputation. Now think about this. Is this attitude of the prodigal a reflection of ours? Do we believe in Christ just for the benefits? Are we willing to take the responsibilities of a follower of Christ? Are we willing to protect the name of God at all costs? Or do we see our own lives, our living, our preference matters more than anything else? Now I'm going to spend a little bit of time and try to say something to the, to the youths and the young adults of the congregation here. I was thrilled to see so many youth leaders uh, just when Naomi asked you to, to stand up. I'm thrilled to see all of you serving so diligently. However, the, what I'm going to say right now is I hope you, you won't find me judgmental because I'm not. I'm just saying out of genuine concern. I've heard from quite a few people that quite a bit of young people of our congregation has left or are contemplating leaving the church for various reasons. If you are thinking about leaving this church, I urge you to think twice and pray twice. I understand. We have gone through some very tough times. And the challenges just don't seem to be getting away. You might think that the adults, the pastors, and the leaders did not do a good job in managing our church affairs. And yes, I'm not going to deny that there are things that we could have done better or mistakes that we should have avoided. Yes, I'm not going to shy away with this. And if you feel hurt, if you feel upset, about what happened, hey, I want to apologize to you. I am truly sorry for you, for, for your hurt and your disappointment. We never meant, we never wanted to let you down. But at a time like this, I really don't think we have much estate to give you if you choose to leave. But before you leave, could you at least give us a chance and pick up some of your responsibilities on your part. Let's work together to right the wrongs. To rebuild this family. And hopefully we can protect our Father's name. If you have concerns on anything, you can talk to me. Talk to Pastor Don. Talk to our deacons, our leaders. I assure you, we love you. And would very much like you to continue to be part of the spiritual home. Now back to the parable. <laughs> Upon such cruel requests, how would the father respond? Incredibly and unbelievably. He honored the son's request and gave him one third of the estate. Well, this is the younger son, so he gets one third. The elder son gets two thirds. This reaction of the father was unimaginable to any Jew. 
as kind as this father could be, the son continued to shame his father to a point as if he wanted to break up with this family completely. The scripture continues, not, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country. The word, the word got together does not mean packing up, but literally means turning his estate into cash. He is selling and cashing in all his share of the estate in a very short time. On Craigslist, maybe on eBay. And during this process, remember this is a village, during this process he further shamed his father's father and his family. In a Jewish village, all neighbors were closely connected to each other. The news among them also spread very fast. When the prodigal went around to sell the properties, he is essentially broadcasting to everyone how he has shamed his father. And at the same time, hatred against this prodigal would grow among all villagers. So the prodigal has to leave his country as far as possible. As a result, he ended up in a far country. And in there, scripture says, and there squandered his wealth in wild living after he, he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Thank God. Right? Thank God that it did not go well in the far country. Thank God that it did not go well when we try to take control of our own lives. The younger son did not do well in the far country. We know that this far country is a Gentile land because there is a pig farm. And Jews don't have pigs. The term squandered his wealth was traditionally understood that he spent all his money at eating, drinking, and prostitutes. However, this impression was only suggested by the elder brother later in the passage. The word here does not carry any moral judgment and can literally mean being excessively generous. And I think it is likely that the youngest son wanted to use the money to establish friendships in this new land, new environment. So he might have loaned most of his money to the locals interest-free, but we all know it. For friendships built upon money, it can be lost when there's no more money left. Scriptures says that a severe famine hit the country. And generally, a famine is defined as widespread crop failure for three consecutive years. So it means that the youngest son has left home for quite some time, quite a number of years. Now having lost everything, he, he has become desperate. And the scripture goes on. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country and, and sent him to his, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomachs with the parts that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Obviously, this guy did not want to hire him in the first place, so he offered him a job in the pig farm, thinking that he would never accept it, because he's a Jew. Well, the prodigal was so desperate that he would 
throw away his own dignity to a point that he actually said he preferred to become a pig. At least he would then be able to eat and digest the pods. The line literally says that he rather becomes a pig. So now we might ask, why did the prodigal not go home when the famine hit? At least he did not have to be so miserable as to long to be paid. Well, we might not understand it, but the younger son knows it better why he cannot go back. It's because of a Jewish village ritual called Kasasa. The ritual Kasasa is performed when a village decides to break up all relationship with a particular villager. In the ancient time, family and village are the most basic form of social security for anyone. So this ritual actually means that the family and the village will no longer be your home and shelter, but on the contrary, you have become the enemy of the village. This devastating ritual will not be performed without a solid reason. The offender must have done something so wrong that it's not even restorable. One of the crimes that will warrant the performing of Kasasa is to lose a family's estate to Gentiles. So the prodigal knows that if he goes back, the villagers, his fellow villagers, will immediately perform Kasasa to him at the gate of the village. Then it will be legitimate for them to throw rocks to him and shut him out or even to kill him. Under this circumstance, no wonder the prodigal would rather eat the pig's pot than going home. However, now it's different. Because he doesn't even have pots to eat. So he's going to die anyway. So the scripture goes on. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I'm starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your highest servants. Church tradition attributes this phrase, come, came, to the, came to his senses, to the repentance of the prodigal. However, if we study the meaning of the original text, the prodigal has yet to repent. Came to his senses, literally means came to himself. Remember earlier that he wanted to become a pig. Now he came to himself and realized he is still himself, not a pig. Then an idea came to mind and he found that, hey, there's still hope. Also, he came to himself only because he did not want to die. He is still thinking of himself only and did not mention anything about regretting how he has broken his father's heart. So the prodigal has not repented yet at this point. Okay? That's very important. Well, maybe you would argue about this because he did say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Isn't this repentance? (laughs) This is one of the cleverest selections of words in the whole passage of Jesus. This classic Confession, I have sinned against heaven against you, is 
actually not originated from Jesus' mouth. Jesus was quoting someone's lie. Then whose lie is this? Jesus was actually quoting from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 10, verse 16. After nine plagues, Pharaoh of Egypt made a false and deceptive confession to Moses. It says on this side. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. The Lord your God is the same as the heaven. We know that this confession of Pharaoh is only meant to deceive Moses so that the plagues will stop. And at the end, Pharaoh still did not let the Israelites go. Therefore, the most devastating plague, the the tenth one, did come. After all. Well, we're not familiar with the Old Testament, so we cannot relate the line of the prodigal to the, to the one of the Pharaoh. But to the target audience of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have known immediately that this line was quoted from Exodus. They have it all memorized. They would know that the prodigal is still unrepentant at this point. Now, please take a note of the prodigal's speech. It consists of three parts. First, the yellow one. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This is a confession of sin. Right? The second, the blue one. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is an acceptance of consequence. The third part, the red one. This is the most significant part, most important component of the whole plan of the prodigal son. This is the core. This is his plan of self-survival. Make me like one of your hired servants. The plan of this younger son is to work, to save money and repay his father so that he might be able to avoid the ritual of Kasasa. The prodigal is very specific that he does not mean to become a slave, but a hired man, and, or literally a craftsman. A slave makes no money, whereas a craftsman does earn money. So he wants to be a hired man of his father, who is also a very generous master. Until now, the prodigal still does not understand his real problem. He still thinks that this is just a money issue. He still does not know that it is about relationship. He still doesn't care his father's feeling. He still doesn't even care whether he has a father or not. He doesn't know that his father really wants a son, not a higher man. His plan to work and save money, no doubt, can save him from legal consequences. But if he does that, he will only break his father's heart further and deeper. But with this self-saving plan in mind, the younger son decides to travel home. The scripture goes on. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. What an incredible, unbelievable picture. 
This father as portrayed by Jesus was so different to the one portrayed by the scribes and the Pharisees. Everyone at Jesus' time would expect this father to stay in his comfortable home and forget about this unappreciative, rebellious son. Even if this son comes home, the father is rightly expected to refuse seeing him. But this father is not the kind of father everyone expects. This father, as portrayed by Jesus, did something that is so shameful according to the culture and value system in Jesus' time. He ran to and threw his arms around this prodigal son. You know, for Jews, no man will run in public after 25 years old. So if you're 24 years old, take your chance. Run as much as you can. It is because as you run, you, you, you have to lift up your rope and thus showing your feet and your undergarment. This is so shameful. This is a very shameful act. But Jesus knows a different kind of father. His father is compassionate and willing to take up shame so that his son and daughters can come home. He runs through the crowd of the village, throws his arm around his, this son who has shamed the family and broken his heart. You know, this father, who, being in very honorable, honorable nature, did not consider his honor something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the shame of his son and being found in such a shame-taking-on act. He humbled himself in order to seek and find this lost, self-seeking son. Brothers and sisters, this brother is the true representation of the incarnate God as in Jesus. The gospel within the gospel could not and did not miss the important concept of incarnation. The father runs to the village gate to seek and find this lost son, throws arms around him and kiss him. Now, with that happen, the villagers they are now unable to perform the kasasa that they wanted to do on the prodigal. Because if they insist on doing this, they will now have to throw rocks onto the father. This father runs to his son in order to shift the anger and hostility of the entire village from his younger son onto himself. He runs to his son in order to pay for the cost of forgiveness to bear the consequences that his son is supposed to bear. Do you see this? This is atonement. This father is atoning for his youngest son's sin. Now facing such a father, how would the son respond? How would you respond to this father? Being wrapped around by gracious and sacrificial love, this youngest son's heart finally melts. He finally, truly repents. The prodigal now demonstrates his repentance by changing the speech that he has prepared. The scripture goes, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. That's it. No more. Do you see how he changed his speech? He has deleted 
the most important component, the core of his original self-saving plan, which is to be a hired man. It's gone. It's useless. It's meaningless now. Now, tradition sometimes interprets that his speech was interrupted by this father. That his father does not allow him to continue with his speech and to suggest himself to be his higher man and earn his way to salvation. So they think the father interrupts his speech. But I doubt the validity of this interpretation. First, well, the father would have no idea what the son was about to say. Right? The prodigal did not email him his speech beforehand and let him interrupt him. And second, and more important reason, just like, just like many of us, the prodigal does not repent when life gets tough. But when he experiences the incredible and unbelievable, sin-forgiving, death-canceling grace. After experiencing such loving and sacrificial grace and acceptance, the prodigal finally understands that his plan is totally irrelevant in front of this loving, shame-taking-on father. He understands that he would only further break his father's heart if he insists on becoming a hired man instead of a son. As a result, the prodigal decides to give up his idea of self-salvation, self-righteousness. He throws himself into the loving grace of the Father. This is gospel. This is salvation. Salvation requires us to give up trying to become righteous on our own and to enter into the salvation brought to us by Jesus with humility. Through incarnation, this living God runs to and clothes us with His own holiness. Through His crucifixion, the sovereign Lord takes on the shame of all of us sinners onto Himself. The scribes and the Pharisees accused Jesus of insulting the name of the Holy God. But they don't know that Jesus portrait of the Father indeed has glorified the name of God like never before. Do you know what God prefers us to call Him? In addition to Father, I think He prefers us to call Him as this God welcomes sinners and eats with them. Do you know why Jesus died in such a posture in which his arms stretch out like this? Because this represents the heart, the posture of the Father. These arms are the Father's arms. These arms are telling us that God welcomes us to enter into his home, is safe to come home. Are you willing? Are you willing to respond to this costly demonstration of sin-forgiving grace? Are you? Let us all pray together. Father, Father, thank you. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for being a Father that is not what we think you should be. Thank you for being a Father that takes on our shame pays for our trespasses and still 
loves us as if we have never sinned, cares for us as if we have never left, and clothes us with your holiness as if we are always holy. Your grace is just unbelievable and incredible. God, may you help us to enter into your unending and unceasing love and mercy and be transformed by it as we continue to walk with you every day. As we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.